0: You have a Bible, you want to grab it and turn to Luke chapter 1. This morning we are concluding Luke chapter 1. We've been in Luke for several weeks now. I was talking to my wife about the time that we were at Masters back in 1999 to 2002. We were attending Grace Community Church and then we served there for several years and the whole time that we were there Pastor John MacArthur was in Luke and by the time we left he was still in Luke. My plan is not to be in Luke that long, although every time I study, I just I want to sit and I want to meditate on each and every verse. God's word is so rich. But today we're covering a lot of ground as we get through the rest of the chapter. We'll get through verse 80. But as we come to a close in Luke chapter one, we need to be reminded that the, the, the last several weeks have really been all about proclamation and Confirmation, But we see this over and over again, proclamation and confirmation. If you think back to that opening prologue, Luke's goal in writing his gospel was to help most excellent Theophilus have gospel certainty, right? Good news certainty. Luke's historical record of the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection and ascension, it's all true. It's not make-believe, it's not a myth, it's not fable. In fact, Luke is so certain that Theophilus can be certain, he says, well, just go and ask. There are plenty of eyewitnesses still around, but plenty of people who can verify the testimony. And so everything that Theophilus has heard up to this point, the theology and the teaching and the history, all of it is factual, there to give him great assurance. These are real people who have really been impacted by the life of Christ. And all of this is indicative of the great change that takes place once Jesus comes to earth. Great change, great transformation as God steps out of eternity and into the very world that he created. We we often say, That blessed Christmas morn. What happened on that blessed Christmas morn? God changed everything. Forever. That's what Mary sang about as we looked at her song last week. The great reversal there is with Jesus' arrival. Yes, social change and political change and familial change and even financial change. You name it, things have changed. But it's not just change on a national level or a domestic level. This is international. When Jesus steps onto the scene, the world is forever changed. Yeah. And this morning, we'll get an even clearer picture as we look to Zachariah's song. It's beautiful, isn't it? As we sing, we recognize how great music is. It's not just that it sounds good, but it's the truth that's sung in the music that really resonates with our hearts and so, so this morning, we're just going to look at another song. And let me remind you that Luke is the only gospel writer to include both Mary's song and Zechariah's song. And later on, he's going to include the angels' chorus as they break out in song. In Simeon's song in chapter 2, apparently, Dr. Luke, he had a thing for music. He had some good music taste. He simply understood how valuable it is to put truth to music. And so he sings, and he wants us to sing, and everyone we see is singing. Why? Because music is memorable, music is enjoyable, and music becomes a great medium to communicate truth. Well, we call Zachariah's song here at the end of chapter 1, we call it the Benedictus. And if you wonder why we give it the strange name, which is actually the title of the sermon, you have Mary's Magnificat, you have Zachariah's Benedictus, and you say, why in the world are we calling them these strange names? Well, they're just the Latin terms at the beginning that identify what these songs are called. Mary's Magnificat just means to magnify. Those are the first words. Benedictus means blessed. For years, I would sing Gloria in Excessi Deo, and I'm like, what? I can't even say, what does that even mean? Well, it just simply means glory to God in the highest. Those are the words in Latin there in Luke 2. Simeon's song in chapter 2 and 29 is called Nuke Dementis. Just the first two words in Latin, a translation meaning now departs. As Simeon recognizes, I can now depart because the Lord salvation is here. But listen, more important than the Latin, because this isn't Latin class, is that these inspired Christmas songs, they tell us something wonderful about the character and the nature of God. Both Mary and Zechariah's songs are steeped in Scripture. And so if we want to understand these songs and what they're proclaiming, we have to have a sense of what the Old Testament teaches. The Magnificat is modeled after the Psalms, and we see a lot of similarities. When we look at the Benedictus, it's modeled after the prophets, and that is why this particular song is actually prophetic in nature. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 57, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Here is God's word. Now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after the name of his father. But his mother answered and said, No, But he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, there is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they all marveled. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak, blessing God. And fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people." And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his way to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Father, there is so much truth jam-packed in these verses. Would you please open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your word with great joy, with obedience, with faith, and with great eagerness to glorify your name. We pray in Jesus' powerful name, and everyone said, Amen. Here's our main idea this morning. As we look at this section of Scripture, in Luke chapter 1, 57 through 80, Zechariah blesses the Lord in prophetic song by recounting how God has dispensed his mercy and demonstrated his faithfulness to his covenant people. Let me say that again. Zechariah blesses the Lord in a prophetic way, in a prophetic song, by recounting how God has dispensed his mercy and demonstrated his faithfulness to his covenant people. And we're going to take this long section and break it up into just three manageable parts. First, we'll look at God's great mercy. And then we'll look at God's great blessings. And then we'll look at the great child, who you might think is John, but it's not. Great mercy, great blessings, and the great child. Let's begin there with point number one, great mercies in 57 through 66. Now the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had magnified his great mercy toward her. And they were rejoicing with her, the text says. The beginning here just begins with a focus on God's great mercy. His great mercy is being magnified throughout this whole story Remember, Zechariah is a great man. He's an awesome man. He's a priest. He's godly. He's blameless. He's righteous. And his wife is too. They come from a godly heritage, the priestly line, but we're reminded that as godly as this guy was, he failed. He failed. He had a big moment, a significant moment in his life. A once-in-a-lifetime moment, and what happened? Zechariah failed. He doubted And the result of his doubt was discipline. He was unable to speak for nine months. But the beautiful thing as we enter into the story is that God extends his mercy, not just to Zachariah and Elizabeth, but his mercy is for their neighbors and their relatives and all who come and observe what's happening. And it's not just for them, but it's for Israel. And it's not just for Israel, but it's for the whole world. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 59. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zechariah after the name of his father. If you go back to Genesis chapter 17, we see very clearly this practice. God commanded that all male children of Israel be circumcised when they were eight days old. And so Zechariah was previously disobedient. You better be sure that he's going to be obedient to circumcise his child. So here he is. Fulfilling the covenant relationship from his side, and oftentimes when the eighth day came, the families gathered together. It's like a big celebration. We don't have big celebrations during the time of circumcision, but here is different. All the family and friends are gathered. It's the eighth day, and it's not just that the child is circumcised, but here the child is named. And Zachariah and Elizabeth's family and friends they figured, well, this is a miracle baby. This is the promised baby. This is the only child in their old age, so certainly, most assuredly, they're going to give the child the name Zachariah. He's going to be Zachariah Jr. Like our culture, but much more back then, many families would choose to give their firstborn, especially their only son, the same name as dad, And that was just a way to communicate that he's going to carry on the family name, the family line, the family legacy. And in many ways, he's going to follow in the footsteps of dad. But John is not going to be a priest like Zachariah. He's going to have his own distinct ministry. And so Elizabeth speaks up. Look there at verse 60. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. You see, even though Zachariah is unable to speak, he was able to communicate God's command clearly to his wife. Because the last thing he wants is for his wife not to be able to speak too. So he communicates, and she comes up and says, no, 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 his name's not Junior, it's John. She learned from her husband's mistake. And so she counters the crowd's contention by saying, no, 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 Zachariah is not his name. God has given this boy a name, and it is John. And you would think that with Elizabeth making a definitive statement here, the discussion should have stopped, but the crowds pushed back. Look at what they say at verse 61. They said to her, There's no one of your relatives who's called by this name. They're arguing with her. I mean, think about that. Kind of nosy neighbors are these, right? Uh, We have some babies that uh, are going to be born in the coming weeks, months. Um, We're not going to argue with you over your baby's name, Jonathan and Becky. We like your name. But here, they're saying, oh, no, no, no. Maybe they're just not used to this. Certainly, they're old. This is their first child. Maybe they need some help. And look at verse 62. They even try to pull rank on Elizabeth. We say, okay, well, let's go to Zechariah. He's the man of the house. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called And just interesting detail, the fact that they're making signs indicates that he's probably not just dumb in his mouth, but his ears are probably stuffed up too. He's both mute and deaf. And that word kapos is used in the Gospels to refer both to the mute and the deaf. And verse 63 says, and he asked for a tablet and he wrote as follows. His name is John. And look what it says. They marveled. Now, here's something I have to pull out for you. It's very interesting that our English translation reads, His name is John. Just a few verses earlier, look there at what Elizabeth says, he shall be called John. But Zechariah actually says something different, and it's it's subtle, but it's significant. In the original Greek, what he says is, John is his name. You say, I don't see the difference. He fronts it with John, not only to say that this is significant, but to emphasize the fact that he wants to get it right this time. He's not going to waste any words. The angel said his name will be John. God said the name is going to be John. So he says, John is his name. He doesn't say, I want his name to be John. We're going to call him John. You should call him John. He's saying, no, God has already established his identity and given him A name, and God wants his name to be John. So John is his name. It's beautiful. It is an act of mercy. You tell me what John's name means. God is merciful. God is merciful. It's not coincidence. It's not like he had just like 50 names and I'll just go with this one. God is very intentional with sending the forerunner and the forerunner's name being John because God is displaying and demonstrating his mercy. And the beautiful thing is that just like Zachariah's act of disobedience immediately causes him to be silent, as soon as he obeys here, what happens? God unlooses the tongue and Zachariah speaks again. Don't you love that? Don't you personally love the fact that God is merciful to you? Think of all the ways that you've dishonored him, you've sinned against him, not just this week and this month, but this morning, this past hour. And God continues to show you mercy. He's a merciful God. And listen, church, God has loosened our tongues so that we would speak praise to his name, so that we would sing of his greatness. Look at verse 64. And once his mouth was opened and his tongue loose, he began to speak, blessing God. You say, well, what does Zachariah's song of praise actually celebrate? Well, again, it sings of God's mercy. God has been gracious to Zachariah and Elizabeth, and Luke wants to show us that it's not just them. But it's all the people who are there with them. When John's conception happened, it confirmed God's power. God can do anything. He can do the impossible. Old people don't have kids, and neither do virgins. But God's power is on display, but it's not just his power. It confirmed God's mercy. And that mercy caused the couple and the crowds to marvel and rejoice. Now there at verse 65, For nine months, Zachariah was unable to talk and now they become the talk of the town. And this again is all intentional. What is God doing here? Look what it says in verse 65. And fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea and all who heard these things put them in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him. So now we turn from God's great mercy to God's great blessing. Now that Zachariah is able to speak, he's been waiting for nine months. He was supposed to give the ironic blessing. He wasn't able to do that. Now he's got a lot to say. And I guarantee you that this whole time as he's silent, he's thinking carefully about what to say. And here is his opportunity. And what I want you to recognize is that it's not just personal sentiments. No, it's actually prophetic it's prophecy that's coming out of his mouth. And so the question again is what is the first thing out of this brother's mouth? And it's all pointing to the greatness of God and his need to be blessed. The great blessing in verses 67 through 75. Just a couple things to notice. First, look at the priority here. Although Zechariah is speaking, he is not the focal point. Although Zechariah is Communicating these things about his son. His son is actually not the focal point. No, it's his son's position as the forerunner of the Messiah that is in view here. Of the 12 verses of the prophecy, the first eight go without even mentioning John's name. Then there's those two verses there in verses 76 and 77, which refers to John and his ministry, but then real quickly it switches back to the last two verses which, again, focus on Jesus. And you say, well, what's the point? The point is Jesus is the point. Now, that's the point. It's not Gabriel the messenger. It's not Mary the mom. It's not the priestly lineage of Zachariah and Elizabeth. It's not even John the forerunner that is the point of the story. No, the narrative wants us to focus our attention on Jesus the Messiah is finally here. Secondly, I want you to notice not just the priority there, but the power Because there's a power that's pointing everyone's attention to Jesus. It says there in verse 67, Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is a unique feeling. It is a distinct feeling of the Spirit. His song, no doubt, is deeply personal, just like Mary's. He's full of gratitude and praise to God because finally he has his son. But I also want you to recognize that even though it's very personal, it is revelatory. He gives us wholly inspired revelation about his son's role and his relationship to the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit begins to unfold how John's birth is the beginning of world transformation coming through the Savior, Jesus. And so the question for us is, well, How do God's people then respond to the fact that God's past promises are seemingly now coming to fruition? How do God's people respond? And look at verse 68. This is how you should respond. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why should you bless God? Simply this. Because of who he is. Which tells me this, you cannot bless God if you don't know him. You cannot exalt God. You cannot delight in God. You cannot magnify God if you're never in his word. If you never sit under the teaching of the word. No, God desires to be blessed and honored because he is worthy of it. And he's revealed himself through the scriptures And so here we see just three distinct characteristics about God and about his works there in verse 67 through 70. Look at them with me. In verse 67, it says God has visited and redeemed his people. In verse 68, it says God has raised up a horn of salvation. In verse 70, it says that God has spoken by the mouth of the prophets. So let's just think here about these three blessings. First, look there at 68 again for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people. That word, listen, is a very important New Testament and Old Testament word, this this concept of visiting. In fact, the Greek word is episcopeo, right? Epi is the prefix, and it heightens the intensity. And scopeo is where we get the word scope. It's, it's vision, it's seen. It's actually the word bishop as it translates in English. A bishop is an overseer. Well, here, what's being communicated is God has paid special attention. He is seeing, and not just seeing it visually, but seeing to it. He's making something happen. You see, God's visitation was of the royal kind of visitation. Not just like your neighbor stopping by, but when the king stops by, it's a different story. Because when the king stops by, he's going to see to it, and he's going to do something. And that's what we have here. So it's not a mundane, it's not a usual kind of visitation. It's significant, it's anticipated, and it is thrilling. But notice also that it says visited, which is interesting because has Jesus been born yet? No. But yet, the verb tense is making it seem like this is a done deal. It's already happened. It's because when God says something, it is done. It's also worth mentioning that God has had a long history of visitations. Just think with me for a second. Go all the way back to Genesis. God made a promise to Sarah and Abraham. He told Abraham to go from this country and follow after me, and I will bless you. You'll be a father of many nations. And one of the signs is, I'm going to give you a son. Well, no son, but yet God remembered Sarah and visited her, and boom, Isaac. The same thing happens with Hannah, who cannot have any children And boom, Samuel. You think about the visitation in Exodus when the people are crying out to God. They are oppressed. They are suffering. They are calling out to God for help, for redemption, for rescue, for salvation. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 4.31, Yahweh cared, same word, visited about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction and they bowed low and worshipped. God shows up at just the right time. He visits his people at just the right time. We think of that passage in Matthew one twenty three, the great name, Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Later on, Luke will tell us that the crowds that witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead had a response You say, Don, what was their response? It's right here in Luke 7, in verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to, oh, I'm sorry, this is a different incident. Jesus gave him back to the mother, and fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And they said, and God has visited his people. You see, when God visits, significant things happen. When God visits, significant things happen. And in this case, God's visitation has salvation written all over it. Jesus will come to this earth. He'll visit the earth, God with us, and he is going to pay the ransom price. He is going to pay for the deliverance of his people. His visit will free them from being slaves, not to Egypt, not to Babylon, not to Assyria, but from sin and the power of sin and Satan and death. So the first blessing that Zechariah describes is that God has visited his people by bringing redemption. But what does this visit entail? Look there at verse 69. Secondly, Zechariah blesses God because it says, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now, I always thought the horn was like a sorry, that's bad. The trumpets. A shofar, that that is not what it is. It's actually a much sweeter metaphor. Where do we find horns? Find horns on animals. Um, When we see deer running around, it's like those things are cute. But then you see like a deer with some gigantic horns and they're not so cute and cuddly. The horn in the Old Testament spoke of power and might strength and dominance. Essentially, the bigger the horn, the scarier that animal with a horn is. Well, thirdly here, the blessing came by way of past prophecy, and this is where we make the connection. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. You see, verse 70 tells us that the coming of this horn of salvation was actually prophesied about in the Old Testament. And one of the clearest examples of this prophecy is found in Psalm 132 in verse 17. There it says this, there I will cause the horn of David to spring up. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. You see, when a horn springs up, that means watch out. And it's not surprising at all that the only two instances that the phrase horn of salvation is referenced in the Old Testament is talking about God. It's not talking about man. And one of them is in 2 Samuel 22. The other is in Psalm 18. 2 Samuel 22 says this. He said, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I think sometimes we read these Psalms and we're so used to the language that we just spout them off, but we have no idea what it's actually saying. But here the connection is, God, you are my shield. You are my protector, but you're not just my protector. You're not just my defense. You're my offense as well. You are the horn of my salvation. You are my savior. In Psalm 18, David celebrating his victory says this in verse 2. Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and my horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see, every time that God is referenced as a horn, it's in relationship to his power to save. And what Zachariah says here is that this has always been the case. This is not something new. God has always been a deliverer, He has always been a Savior. Jesus, with His omnipotent power, is coming to the world to provide a decisive victory. And it's not even close. Well, why does God give these blessings? We looked at three of them. But the question now is why? Why does he bless in this way? And Zechariah provides four reasons, and we'll look at them real quickly. First, the blessing will be about salvation from his enemies because there is an enemy, and that enemy needs to be defeated. And the enemy is stronger than you and I, and we cannot defeat the enemy on our own. How are we going to fight with principalities and the powers of the air and spiritual forces of darkness? You can't. You will be pummeled, but God can. And that is why he sent his son. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Secondly, to show mercy toward our fathers. This liberation is an act of mercy that's not just for us here and now in 2023, but goes all the way back. And when you are long gone and dead and your great great grandkids come around and their great grandkids come around, God's salvation and his power will be available to them as well. Third, it's to remember his covenant because God is a faithful covenant keeper. Verse 73 says, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. They didn't like to admit it. They denied it. But they were constantly under oppression. And nothing is different when Jesus stepped on the scene because Rome is oppressing them. The tyrants of Rome, even with their own religious culture, Israel was being oppressed. But we'll remember Isaiah 2 in verse 11, where God says, The lofty look of man will be made low, and the men made high will be bowed down, and Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. There has always been the promise to the people of Israel that God would come and change the fortune of his people. Ezekiel 40 and verses 40 to 48, Micah 4, Isaiah 60, Amos 9, Joel 4. There's so many passages that celebrate that when Israel is finally restored and the Messiah comes, everything changes. You say, well, that's great news, but it sounds like that's a lot of great news for Israel. Well, what about the Gentiles? What about us? And that's the beautiful thing, because not all Israel is Israel. Because from the very beginning, it's always been about faith in Christ, not your heritage, not your nationality. Look at verse 74, A fourth reason for the blessing God's desires that we all might serve him without fear. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. And I'll just tell you right now that that right there is the key. This is the focal point. Yes, Israel is the centerpiece in the Old Testament. But this restructuring, this attention to Israel is so that all of the nations would serve God, would fear God. And this service here is not just some generic idea of working for God, but it is a sacred service. It is a worship service. So Israel, the whole intent of Israel was to point the rest of the nations, the rest of the world to God. They're like Sam, the worship leader, Jesus had to come as the greater and better Israel and provide the proper way. You see, Zachariah is envisioning Israel spearheading worship for the entire world, and he's saying that this child is going to fix everything. This child is going to bring about the proper worship. At the time, they're just offering sacrifices and goats, and that worship only goes so far. There is no forgiveness of sins. But the true Adam, the true David, the true Israel comes and offers up his life so that all of us can have direct access to God. And we're to serve him. The text says, look there, without fear. And that raises a big interpretive question. The interesting thing is that It says, without fear, but Mary just sang a song and said, we should fear him. Look there at verse 50. And so the question that you should ask as a good Bible student is, well, which one is it? Do we fear him or do we not fear him? Who do we listen to? Do we listen to Mother, the Mary of Jesus, who's actually quoting an Old Testament song? So it seems like maybe there's more weight to Mary saying what she's saying. But yet, look at what Zachariah says. He says that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And we would say, well, that sounds pretty pretty biblical. We should probably listen to him. Do we have to choose? Listen to John Newton, who knew a thing or two about God's grace. He writes this, The Lord bids me, fear not, And at the same time, he says, happy is the man who fears always. How to fear and not to fear at the same time is, I believe, one branch of that secret of the Lord which none can understand but by the teaching of his spirit. When I think of my heart, of the world, of the power of darkness, what cause of my continual fear I am on the enemy's ground and cannot move a step, but some snare is spread for my feet. But when I think of the person, the grace, the power, the care, the faithfulness of my Savior, why may I not say I will trust and not be afraid? For the Lord Almighty is with me. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I wish to be delivered from anxious and unbelieving fear, which weakens the hands and disquiets the heart. I wish to increase in a humble jealousy and distrust of myself and of everything about me. Listen, you might not get it, but biblical theology teaches both. We are to fear God and we are not to fear God. That's what the Bible teaches. And you say, well, how do I know what's a good fear and what's a bad fear? Well, look again at the text. That we are to fear Him or not fear Him, but the end product is holiness And righteousness before him all of our days. How do we know what's the appropriate fear? Is does your fear lead you to worship? Does your fear of God create in you a sense of awe and admiration? Does your fear of God lead you to obedience? Or does it cause you to cower away and remove yourself from God and from God's people, from the church? Listen, The right kind of fear will always, always, always drive us to more of God. And I just need to be clear here because serving him in holiness and in righteousness is not the way that we are saved. The Catholic Church will tell you otherwise. Mormonism will tell you otherwise. Every other religion of the world will tell you otherwise. What can you do to be made right with God? The Christian message is dramatically different. The Christian message does not say that you have to live in holiness and righteousness. The Christian message says you have holiness and you have righteousness because you have been saved. That is a big difference. Look, God has redeemed us at the cost of his son, the precious blood of Christ. But he didn't just free you from the clutches of Satan, and he just didn't free you from the power of sin. He didn't free you just from the consequences of sin, and he didn't free you so that one day you can go to heaven. Listen, God saved you. He rescued you. He came down to this earth for you so that you might serve him. So listen, church. We celebrate the gospel. It is the good news. It's the greatest news. But there's a point to it. There's a reason for it. And that reason should lead us all into song and to service and to worship. If those three things are not happening, I doubt that you're truly saved. I doubt that you truly fear him. Fear leads to worship. Fear leads to song. Fear leads to service. Fear leads to righteousness and holiness. All of our days. Now, Zachariah turns his attention on his son. Mary, she starts in her song, very narrow, then goes broad. Zachariah goes very broad and then comes narrow. And Fixes his eyes on his son. And I love this last point, the great child. Envision this scene. Here's baby John, eight months old. Can probably fit in Zachariah's hand. And is looking at his precious little baby, making those little faces. And he says to him in verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high. He doesn't say that he's the son of the most high. He says, you will be the prophet of the most high. So even though they're celebrating the birth of John, we recognize that John is still just the mouthpiece to point people to the Messiah. And what will this little boy grow up to be? What will he do? Verse 76, for you will go before the Lord to make ready his ways. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by, listen this, the forgiveness of sins. John, the Baptist's ministry, was to prepare people for the Messiah. How did he prepare them for the Messiah? He said, repent, repent. There are too many people in this world who love the idea that Jesus came at Christmas time They love the idea that there is a heaven. They love the idea that there's forgiveness. But the the problem is, there is no repentance. And no one is going to heaven. No one is going to be saved apart from genuine repentance. And John's ministry is to come and to confront a world who thought that they just needed rescue and deliverance from the political enemies of the world. When in fact, what he told them was, you need to prepare your heart in humility and repentance. Listen, you have friends and family. You have sons and daughters. You have parents who might think that they're going to heaven and they're riding the wave of other people's repentance when they themselves need to repent. That might be you. Maybe you haven't truly turned to Christ in genuine repentance. Metanoia, changing of mind about who you are and who God is and the need to turn from your sin To abhor your sin, the sin that put Christ on the cross. God's message to us is salvation is available. It is available for all. And all can come, but we must repent. And we recognize that repentance is a gift in and of itself. It is an act of grace and mercy. But listen, this is John's message. This is John's job description. He's preaching repentance. He's preparing people for the Messiah. And you say, well, why does he do that? And let's not skip this last point. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of God. And we'll just close on this idea. God is tender in his mercy. He could have just said because of the mercy of God, but he doesn't. He says because of the tender mercy of God. Generation after generation, Israel failed. They disobeyed, they rebelled, they would repent and turn for a little bit, but then they disobeyed and failed. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's what you do. You disobey and you fail. And then you repent and then you do it again. You disobey and you fail. And that's just characteristic of every human being, every fallen sinner, But aren't you so glad that God has tender mercy toward you? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, mercy is music. And tender mercy is the most exquisite form of it, especially to a broken heart, to one who is despondent and despairing. This word is life from the dead. A great sinner, much bruised by the lashes of conscience, Will bend his ear this way and cry, Let me hear again the dulcet, that's the sweet and soothing sound of these words tender mercy. Have you experienced God's tender mercy? If you have, it's going to lead to something to worship, to song, to service joy because of the tender mercy of our God, which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to direct our feet into the way of peace. I'm reminded of Peter's words. He said this in 2 Peter 1.19. So we Have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. For many of you, this has happened. The morning star has arisen in your heart. And I would just encourage you, church, God's tender mercy has come your way. Christmas has come and gone, but the words of Isaiah 9 are true every single day of the year. The people who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. Those who live in the land of the shadow of death, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore and it is the zeal of Yahweh of hosts who will accomplish this. Listen, Jesus is the greatest child ever born. Jesus is the greatest reality in all of the universe. He is the central piece and figure of this story and so Zechariah He sings. He has to. It's a prophecy of praise and promise. And just in a few short stanzas, he distills all this prophetic history to tell us John is special, but he's not the point. He's the pointer who points us to Jesus. He's the forerunner, but he's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is Christ. And Christ has visited the earth with profound mercy, with profound blessing and caused spiritual transformation. He's defeated his enemies. He's defeated the power of sin and Satan and death. And so how are you going to respond? Listen, the incarnation should change you. Jesus' life should change you. His ministry should change you. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, it all is intended to change you. Chapter 1. John jumps for joy because Jesus is here. Elizabeth exclaims because Jesus is here. Mary magnifies because Jesus is here. Zachariah blesses because Jesus is here. And we'll see next that everyone marvels and the angels burst out in chorus, glory to God in the highest. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what great delight That all of these blessings, all of these promises, your covenant keeping, the fact that you are a God that cannot lie, all of the benefits come to us through the person and work of Christ. He has purchased them on our behalf. And God, even the faith that we need to appropriate them to our lives comes as a gracious gift. And for that, Lord, we are thankful. Oh God, would you please help us to not just express gratitude with our mouths, but with our very lives, the way that we think and act and spend our time and money and resources, the way that we interact with people. Lord, would you please create in our hearts a longing to know you and make you known. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.